Section 2 of A Study of British Genius by Havelock Ellis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 2 Nationality and Race. The Determination of Place of Origin. Birthplaces of Grandparents. The Best Available Criteria. Relative Productiveness in Genius of England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. The Group of Mixed British Origin. The group of mixed British and foreign origin. Importance of the French element. Origins of eminent British women. The distinction of English genius according to counties. The genius of Kent. The regional distribution of English women of ability. The probable predominance of Norfolk and Suffolk in relative amount of ability. The three great foci of English genius. The English Anglican focus. The apparent poverty of London in Aboriginal genius. The southwestern focus. The Welsh border. The Anglo-Danish district, the psychological characteristics of East Anglican genius, the characteristics of the South-Western focus, the characteristics of the Welsh border, the significance of the position of Kent, the distribution of genius in Wales, the distribution of genius in Scotland, the distribution of genius in Ireland, the regional distribution of various kinds of ability, the distribution of scientific ability, the regional variations with scientific aptitude, the distribution of eminent soldiers, the distribution of eminent sailors, the distribution of artists, the distribution of dramatic ability, the possible modification of racial factors by environmental conditions. It is scarcely necessary to remark that nationality and race, when used as distinguishing marks of people who all belong to the British Islands, are not identical terms and are both vague. The races, however we may describe them, constituting the people of Great Britain, are to be found in all the main divisions of the two islands and the fact that a man is English or Scotch or Irish tells us nothing positive as to his race. Some indication of race, however, is in many cases furnished if we know the particular district to which a man's ancestors belonged, and this indication is further strengthened if we can ascertain his physical type. In determining on a large scale the place of origin of men of genius, the usual method hitherto has been to adopt the crude plan of noting the birthplace. I have so far as possible discarded this method. For man's birthplace, obviously it tells us nothing decisive as to his real place of origin. It has seemed to me that a man's place of origin can most accurately be determined by considering the district to which his four grandparents belonged. If we know this, we know with considerable certainty in what parts of the country he is really rooted, and in many cases we can thus form an estimate of his probable race. I have expended a very considerable amount of time and trouble over this part of my inquiry, yet so very confused or conflicting is often the available evidence that probably none of my groups of data contain so many slight inaccuracies as this. It is only in a very small proportion of cases, if when the information derived from the dictionary is supplemented, that I have been able to determine the origins of all four grandparents. I have usually considered myself fortunate when I have been able to tell where the father and mother came from, and have often been well content merely to find out where the father came from. Only in a few cases have I admitted the evidence of birthplace. London as a birthplace has been ignored altogether. When the facts are available, it is nearly always found that the parents had migrated to London. We may reasonably assume that this is probably the case when the facts are not available. It very rarely occurs, as in the case of J. Bentham, that even one grandparent belonged to London. In order to represent the varying values of this evidence, I have adopted a system of marks. If the four grandparents are of known origin, an eminent man is entitled to four marks. These marks being divided among the counties to which he belongs. When the evidence is less explicit, the marks are correspondingly diminished. By this method, I am able to give due weight to the very numerous cases in which the parents or grandparents belong to different parts of the kingdom. Every one of the 1,030 persons included in this inquiry may be definitely classed with at all events a fair degree of probability in one part or another of the British Islands. When this is done, we obtain the following results. English, 659, Welsh, 28, Scotch, 137, Irish, 63, Mixed British, 97, Mixed British and Foreign, 46. Omitting for the moment the individuals of mixed ancestry, we find that 74.2% are English, 3.1 Welsh, 15.4 Scotch and 7.1 Irish. If we take the basis of the present population and regard the proportion of eminent persons produced by England as the standard, Wales has produced slightly less than a share of persons of ability, 
Ireland still less and Scotland decidedly more than her share. As regards Wales, we have to bear in mind the difficulty of a language not recognised as a medium of civilisation. As regards Scotland, we probably have to recognise that intellectual aptitudes are especially marked among the Scotch, and also that the tendency has been fostered by circumstances, since, as is well known, the lowland Scotch are almost identical in racial composition with the northern English, and there are no artificial barriers of language. On the other hand, the Irish have been seriously hampered by geographical and to some extent by linguistic barriers, as well as by unfortunate political circumstances in contributing their due share to British civilization. Mr. A. H. H. MacLean has shown, where we got our best men, London, 1900, that of some 2,500 British persons of ability belonging to the 19th century, 70% are English, 18% Scotch, 10% Irish and 2% Welsh. We thus find that by taking a much lower standard of ability and confining ourselves to the most recent period, Scotland stands higher than ever, while Ireland benefits very greatly at the expense of both England and Wales. This is probably not altogether an unexpected result. It is on the whole conferred by the analysis of British men of the time, made by Dr. Now Sir, Conan Doyle, 19th century, August, 1888. Both Mr. McLean and Sir Conan Doyle adopted the crude test of birthplace. The somewhat higher place which they give to the Irish is, however, really confirmed by the analysis of my results. At an earlier stage of my inquiry, when the standard of ability adopted was higher, and the most recent group of eminent persons, those included in the supplement to the Dictionary of National Biography, had not been added, I found that the English contribution was larger, that the Irish smaller, than I now find it. It appears evident that possibly, with some lowering of the standard of ability, and certainly with the advent of modern times, the Irish contribution tends to reach a large proportion. When we turn to consider the 143 persons who are of mixed British or mixed foreign and British race, we find that they may be divided as follows. English and Irish, 33. English and Scotch, 30. English and Welsh, 25. Mixed British, other than above, 9. British and foreign, 46. In percentages, these results are English and Irish, 23. English and Scotch, 20.9. English and Welsh, 17.4. Other British, 6.2. British and foreign, 32.1. We here reach the interesting result that notwithstanding the extreme frequency of English-Scotch marriages and the very high proportion of ability among the unmixed Scotch, the English-Irish group stands even absolutely above the English-Scotch group, while the English-Welsh group is still more largely out of proportion with the small pure Welsh group, and is not far behind the English-Scotch group. It would appear that, so far as ability is concerned, the Irish and the Welsh are much better adapted for crossing with English than are the more closely related Scotch. There are 46 persons in whom one or more elements of foreign blood are mingled with one or more British elements. These do not, of course, include all the foreigners who have played a part in English civilization, since no person of purely foreign blood was taken into account in the preparation of my list. This has, for instance, led to the omission of numerous early Normans like Beckett, some later French Huguenots like Romilly, and several eminent Jews. Even though the purely French persons of eminence are omitted, the French elements remain distinctly the most important. At least 17 of our 46 individuals of partially foreign origin have had a French parent or grandparent. Some of these were Huguenots. No account has been taken of ancestors beyond the grandparents, but a Huguenot ancestral element seemingly more remote than the grandparents is certainly of very frequent occurrence. I have noted it in 17 cases, and it certainly occurs much oftener. Other remote Huguenot elements, especially Walloon, Flemish and Dutch, occur with only less frequency. German parents and grandparents occur ten times, the Dutch and Flemish occurring eight times are but little behind, while five of our eminent persons were partially Italian. The exact combinations with a number of times of their occurrence are as follow. English and French, twelve. English and German, eight. English and Dutch, five. English and Italian, three. English and Flemish, two. Scotch and French, two. English, Irish, French and Swiss, two. English and Russian, one. English and Danish, one. English, Irish and German, one. Irish and French, one. Irish and Italian, one. Irish and Spanish, one. English, Irish and Italian, one. Scotch and Dutch, one. Irish and Austrian, one. English, Scotch and German, one. Welsh and Swiss, one. Welsh and Italian, one. There is much interest in considering separately the places of origin of the 55 eminent women on our list. 
Of these, 29 are English, 4 Scotch, 4 Irish, and 18 of mixed origin. The obvious points to note here are the very remarkable prevalence of women of mixed race in the proportion of 32%, instead of only 13%, as in the case of our eminent persons generally, and the rise of Ireland to equality with Scotland. When we analyse the 18 mixed cases, the same prevalence of the Irish element appears in a very much more marked form. The various mixtures are as follows. English and Irish, 8. English and Scotch, 2. English and Welsh, 2. English and French, 2. English and Italian, 1. English, Irish and German, 1. English, Irish and Italian, 1. English, Irish, French and Swiss, 1. Here we see that while the English element enters into every combination, in not less than 11 of the 18 cases it is combined with an Irish element. The Scotch element reaches no higher level than the Welsh and is even inferior to the French. Among our eminent persons generally, not more than one in fifteen is Irish. Among the eminent women, more than one in four is Irish. While Scotland, which has produced relatively the largest share of eminent men, has produced relatively the smallest share of eminent women. So far, we have been concerned solely with the distribution of our eminent ability in the main divisions of the United Kingdom. There is, however, much interest in determining the distribution of ability within these main divisions. The obvious and indeed the inevitable basis for this part of the inquiry is the division into counties. It is, however, a very awkward and inconvenient basis. The counties are very unequal in size, usually too small, and in most cases they correspond to no ancient boundaries. They have neither the historical significance of the ancient French provinces nor the practical convenience of the modern French departments. The ancient English dioceses furnish, on the whole, a better basis and one that for the most part corresponds to real ancient divisions. But it was obviously inconvenient and inadvisable to fall back on an extinct division of the country. It was necessary to be content with the country basis and to seek so far as possible to minimise its disadvantages. In the first place, English counties may be presented in accordance with the absolute number of elements of ability which each possesses. With no attempt to show the significance of the numbers, it will of course be remembered, and may be clearly seen by reference to Appendix B, that in consequence of the imperfection of our knowledge, these elements are of disparate value, so that while one individual may be counted four times, i.e. one's feet or his grandparents, another may only be counted once. Most individuals are counted twice. Yorkshire, 90. Norfolk, 67. Devon, 56. Kent, 51. Suffolk, 50. Lancashire, 43. Lincolnshire, 37. Somerset, 30. Cornwall, 30. Gloucestershire, 28. Essex, 27. Warwickshire, 26. Shropshire, 24. Staffordshire, 24. Wiltshire, 24. Northumberland, 20. Worcestershire, 20. Derbyshire, 19. Cheshire, 19. Dorset, 19. Hampshire, 19. Buckinghamshire, 19. Northamptonshire, 18. Hertfordshire, 18. Herefordshire, 17. Oxfordshire, 16. Cumberland, 16. Nottinghamshire, 16. Leicestershire, 15. Cambridgeshire, 15. Surrey, 14. Westmoreland, 11. Sussex, 10. Durham, 8. Bedfordshire, 8. Berkshire, 8. Rutland, 6. Middlesex, 5. Huntingdonshire, 5. Monmouth, 3. The significance of these results is not quite obvious to casual inspection. We see that the origins of English ability are to be found all over the country, and we see also, as we should expect, that the large counties have reduced much ability and the small counties little. How can we ascertain the real significance of these figures? There are two methods we may adopt for ascertaining the significance of our figures. We may determine the amount of ability in each country in relation to its area, or we may determine it in relation to its population. The method of comparison which rests on ascertaining the relative amount of ability per square mile for each county is not so absurd in the case of a country like England as it may possibly seem at the first glance. To compare the ability per square mile of a county, like present-day Lancashire, covered with great towns, to an agricultural country like present-day Norfolk or Suffolk, would be obviously unfair to the latter. But we may remember that East Anglia was a populous manufacturing centre for many centuries, during which Lancashire resembled modern Cumberland. During the long history of England, the various counties had passed through many economic vicissitudes. 
and while some have doubtless succeeded in remaining throughout at a fairly medium level of populousness others have at some periods been great centres of population and at other periods denuded of their inhabitants thus when we put one period against another the differences between the counties in average density of population are probably small and is by no means so absurd as to ascertain the relative amount of ability per square mile of the whole period as it would be for a single century an even approximate determination of the amount of ability in relation to the population is obviously impossible for the whole period we can only obtain it with certainty for the nineteenth century i have thought it of some interest and probably of real significance as an aid to determining the problem before us to consider separately the eminent persons born during the nineteenth century nearly all in the first half and to determine what relation the elements they supply us with bear to the population of the various counties as revealed by the census of 1841 the basis of comparison seems to be fairly sound though unfortunately the numbers for each county are necessarily so small that we cannot consider the results as absolutely conclusive when they are not otherwise confirmed it must be added further that there is another source of error the existence of which probably might not be suspected apart altogether from the rise and fall in population a county may still exhibit a very marked fluctuation in its genius producing power a very interesting and decisive example of this is furnished by kent on account of its proximity to the continent kent has from the earliest periods been a highly civilized county and it has always been a populous one it remains a populous and flourishing county at the present day it has also been as we shall see very prolific indeed in genius yet at the present day its ability producing powers have almost ceased it is associated perhaps more than any other county with the renaissance in england caxton belonged to kent it was the home of marlowe and lely the two teachers of shakespeare as well as of lenacre and harvey who represent the english renaissance on the scientific side as at that period it was prolific in administrators diplomatists and soldiers it was strongly royalist and suffered greatly in the cause of charles i when charles fell kent fell so far as genius producing power is concerned and however it may continue to flourish in population and general prosperity it has never regained its power to add largely to english ability in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries its contributions to the elements of english ability are represented by the figures fifteen and sixteen respectively relatively a very large proportion by the eighteenth century so fertile in ability kent is only responsible for the relatively small contribution of eleven elements and in the nineteenth century its contribution has sunk to four elements which should not include a single individual who was wholly kentish yet as we shall see kent stands almost if not quite at the head of all the english counties in its total contribution to english genius although no other county could be found to furnish so remarkable an instance of great intellectual fertility followed by intellectual decadence without decrease in population and prosperity this case is enough to show that we can by no means assume that the intellectual fertility of a country in one century is any certain index to its general intellectual fertility i now present side by side the order of decreasing intellectual fertility into which four the counties our eminent men belong to when we consider the relative amount of the total ability for the whole period on the basis of area taken as about one thousand square miles and also the order into which the elements for the nineteenth century fall on the basis of the population of the counties in eighteen forty one a plus sign after the figures in the first column indicates that as the modern population of the county in question is very decidedly below the average for the county generally we probably ought to add a few units to the figures given a minus sign indicates that as the modern population is much above the average for the country generally we probably ought to subtract a few units to reach a fair estimate the sign of equality means that the population of the county approximates to the average for the country generally those counties which contain a proportion of elements of genius equal to more than nineteen of the one thousand square miles more than two per one hundred thousand inhabitants must be considered prolific and genius a table is displayed on the following pages with two main columns the amount of ability in ratio per one thousand square miles and the amount of ability during the nineteenth century in ratio per one hundred thousand inhabitants eighteen forty one amount of ability in ratio per one hundred square miles rutland forty plus southwark thirty three plus kent thirty two minus norfolk thirty one plus warwickshire twenty nine minus hertfordshire twenty eight plus 
Worcestershire, 27 minus. Buckinghamshire, 25 plus. Cornwall, 22 plus. Gloucestershire, 22 equals. Lancashire, 22 minus. Devonshire, 21 plus. Oxfordshire, 21 plus. Herefordshire, 20 plus. Staffordshire, 20 minus. Nottinghamshire, 19 plus. Dorsetshire, 19 plus. Northamptonshire, 18 plus. Leicestershire, 18 plus. Somerset, 18 plus. Shropshire, 18 plus. Cambridgeshire, 18 plus. Derbyshire, 18 equals. Surrey, 18 minus. Cheshire, 18 minus. Essex, 17 plus. Wiltshire, 17 plus. Bedfordshire, 17 plus. Middlesex, 17. Westmoreland, 14 plus. Yorkshire, 14 equals. Huntingtonshire, 13 plus. Lincolnshire, 13 plus. Berkshire, 11 plus. Hampshire, 11 plus. Cumberland, 10 plus. Northumberland, 9 plus. Sussex, 7 plus. Durham, 7 minus. Monmouth, 5 plus. Amount of ability during the 19th century in ratio per 100,000 inhabitants, 1841. Norfolk, 5.3. Herefordshire, 4.3. Oxfordshire, 4.3. Hertfordshire, 3.8. Worcestershire, 3.8. Westmoreland, 3.6. Dorsetshire, 3.4. Cumberland, 3.4. Warwickshire, 2.7. Cornwall, 2.6. Buckinghamshire, 2.5. Shropshire, 2.5. Northumberland, 2.4. Wiltshire, 2.3. Cambridgeshire, 2.3. Lincolnshire, 2.2. Suffolk, 2.1. Nottinghamshire, 2.0. Berkshire, 1.8. Devonshire, 1.5. Yorkshire, 1.5. Derbyshire, 1.4. Cheshire, 1.2. Gloucestershire, 1.2. Hampshire, 1.1. Leicestershire, 0.9. Somerset, 0.9. Lancashire, 0.8. Staffordshire 0.8, Essex 0.8, Kent 0.7, Sussex 0.4, Surrey 0.3, Durham 0.3, Bedfordshire, Northamptonshire, Huntingdonshire, Monmouth, Rutland 0. Middlesex omitted. If we consider the eminent women separately, we find that 11 English counties have produced more than one unit of ability. The absolute numbers are as follows Norfolk 9, Suffolk 5, Yorkshire 4, Hereford 3. Kent, 3. Northumberland, 3. Lancashire, 2. Worcestershire, 2. Shropshire, 2. Devonshire, 2. Cornwall, 2. The numbers are too small to make it worthwhile to attempt to ascertain the relative value of these figures. It is sufficiently clear that Norfolk stands first, and that Suffolk, a much smaller country, follows very closely after. Although the estimate of ability on the basis of the area of their counties is obviously only roughly approximate, while the more reliable method of ascertaining the proportion of to population during the 19th century suffers from the defect that it by no means necessarily indicates the amount of ability in previous centuries, and while both methods are hampered by the very small size of many of the counties, we may still reach certain conclusions by considering the two lists together. The counties that stand high on both lists have probably been highly productive of intellectual ability, those that stand low in both lists have probably been markedly unproductive. We may probably believe that the counties that have contributed most largely to the making of English men of genius are Norfolk, Suffolk, Hertfordshire, Warwickshire, Worcestershire, Herefordshire, Buckinghamshire, Cornwall, Dorsetshire, Oxfordshire, and Shropshire. To these we must certainly add Kent, since its total output more than compensates for its intellectual decadence during recent centuries. But we are perhaps scarcely justified in including Rutland, which, by a curious anomaly, appears at the head of the first list by the smallest and one of the most thinly populated of English counties. It cannot hastily be assumed that while these counties rank properly at the head of English counties from the intellectual point of view, there are not others which perhaps on a perfectly sound basis ought not to rank almost on a level with them. This would especially be so if we were to take quality of genius as well as quantity into consideration. It is probable that Somerset, Devonshire, Gloucestershire, Wiltshire and Essex should be included among those of the first rank, although the two associated East Anglican counties of Norfolk and Suffolk have a fairly assured position at the head. It will be noted that the results here reached in regard to the distribution of ability amongst English counties involve very high, not indeed the highest place, for Suffolk. Possibly the reader may be inclined to view this conclusion with suspicion should he chance to learn that the present writer, though having no personal connection with this county, happens to have 
been ancestrally connected with Suffolk during many centuries. Personally, I hope I have no sympathy with the bias of patriotism, for I recognise that, however useful sometimes in practical affairs, it is an unfailing sign of intellectual ill-breeding. But there is always a temptation to view with suspicion, which is often indeed justified. Any investigation of the present kind as probably affected by local patriotism. It may therefore be proper to assist the reader to reach a personal equation in this case, by stating that the present writer was born in Surrey, and that his hereditary may be expressed in the formula. Suffolk, Hampshire, Durham, Suffolk. It may be added that while I had not anticipated the higher place which Suffolk would take as a contributor to British ability, that position is to some extent supported by the results of other impartial inquiries. Thus Mr. Maclean finds that Suffolk is among the six English counties, which, on the basis of population, contributed the largest number of eminent men to the Victorian period, and places Ipswich first among the towns, excluding the large cities, which have been prolific in ability. Sir Conan Doyle, investigating men of the time, finds that Suffolk is among the three English counties that stand first in production of intellectual ability on the basis of population, and remarks that its intellectual productivity is quite phenomenal. It must be remembered that these inquiries were on the basis of birthplace, and that the East Anglicans show a marked tendency to emigrate westwards, and especially to London. In a large number of cases, they are credited to other districts. On the basis of these results, and taking into consideration also the special quality of the individuals, as may be done by studying Appendix B, we come, I believe, to the conclusion that there are two, or rather three, great foci of intellectual ability in England. The East Anglican focus, the southwestern focus, and the focus of the Welsh border. The East Anglican focus may, for the present purpose, be said to include not only Norfolk and Suffolk, but also the adjoining counties of Essex, Cambridgeshire, and Hertfordshire, which, though inferior both in the quantity and the quality of their journeys to East Anglica proper, are still high in intellectual ability, which is nearly always of distinctly East Anglican type. These five counties form a compact whole among the eminent men who, so far as our knowledge sometimes limited, extends belong wholly to this region are Bishop Andrews, the Bacons, Thomas Cavendish, Chaucer, Constable, Cockman, Cowper, Cranmer, Flaxman, John Fletcher, Gainsborough, William Gilbert, Gosthurst, the Littons, Nelson, the Newmans, Porson, Pussey, Ray, the Vares, Robert Walpole, and Walsley. Among those who belong in part to this region are Airy, the Arnolds, Barrow, Bradlaugh, Collett, Gresham, Stephen Hales, Charles Lamb, the Martineaus, Sir Thomas More, Patter, Sir Thomas Smith, and Walsingham. Ethnologically, it may be remarked, this focus is most recent of the three. East Anglica is a region very open to invasion. Brythons, Romans, Angles, and Normans all seem to have come here in large numbers and it differs from every other English district, except to some extent Kent, a country closely allied to it, in continuing to welcome foreigners, Dutch, Flemish, Walloon, French, all through medieval times, down to the revocation of the Edict of Nantes and the end of the 17th century. Middlesex with London lies on the borders of the East Anglican focus, with which probably of all the foci of English genius it is most intimately connected. It can scarcely, however, be included within the focus. The metropolis itself is excluded from our inquiry, partially because we are not taking the axiom of birthplace into account, and partially because it seems impossible to find any eminent person who belongs to London, or even to Middlesex, through all his grandparents. Middlesex is poor in Aboriginal ability, even for a small county, and if we were to class it psychologically at all, I believe it would fall into the predominantly Saxon group of counties which includes Berkshire, Surrey, Sussex and Hampshire, a group which, as we shall see, constitute a district remarkably poor in Aboriginal ability. The marked prevalence of merely native ability in London and the marked deficiency of really Aboriginal ability are phenomena alike easy of explanation. Among the crowds who drift into every great metropolis, there are always many clever ambitious people. Hence the number of able persons who are merely connected with a metropolis by the accident of birth, but a great metropolis swiftly kills those whom it attracts. Canty Degeneration amongst Londoners, 1885, page 19, very probably defined a Londoner as one whose parents and grandparents were born and bred in London, but during the four years in which he investigated this question, he was unable to find a single Londoner in this true and definite sense. Even those who were Londoners back to the grandparents on one side only were usually stunted or feeble and unlikely to propagate. Dr. Harry Campbell, 
causation disease, page 245, among 200 London-born children, found two or three whose parents and grandparents were born and bred in London, and these children were very delicate. The southwestern focus of English genius is the largest, and although in proportion to the population ability is here less prevalent than in the East Anglican district, in absolute amount, and perhaps even in importance, this region may perhaps be said to be the most conspicuous centre of English intellectual energy. I regard it as comprising the counties of Wiltshire, Somerset, Dorset, Devon and Cornwall. These counties, together with part of Hampshire, make up the whole of the southwestern promontory of Great Britain. The population of this region is marked by very much darker hair, and therefore much higher index of negrescence than the population of counties to east of it. The district is defended by Wensdyke and Borkley Dyke, one of the most important structures of this kind in Europe, and this fact indicates that the region was once arrayed against the rest of Britain. Pitt Rivers has shown that this wall is of Roman or post-Roman date, possibly Saxon. A great focus of British genius is, taken altogether, unquestionably the oldest of the three foci which we may detect in England. We may call it the Geodelic Iberian Centre. It is well known that this region was the last stronghold of the early British power in England, when finally its power was broken in war, the Saxon invaders had become Christianized and settled peacefully side by side with the Aboriginal inhabitants. The people of this region were still described by King Alfred as Welshkin, and the predominance of the Aboriginal element may still be detected in the characteristics of the genies of this region. Among the more eminent individuals who seem to belong wholly to this region are Roger Bacon, Blackstone, Robert Blake, St. Boniface, Clifford Coldridge, Dampier, Drake, St. Dunstan, Ford, Crockin, Hawkins, Hobbes, Hooker, John of Salisbury, Keats, Locke, Pym, Radley, Reynolds, Rodney, Alfred Stevens, Sydenham, Trevithick, Thomas Young. Among those who belong to it in part are Matthew Arnold, Bradley, Browning, Byron, the Cannings, Fielding, C.J. Fox, Froude, the Kingsleys, Huxley. The third focus, that the Welsh border, includes the counties of Gloucestershire, Warwickshire, Worcestershire, Herefordshire, Shropshire and Cheshire. This selection of counties may possibly seem a little arbitrary, but it will be found to be so on turning to the anthropological map of the British Islands, as given, for instance, in Ripley's Races of Europe, founded on Beddoe's observations of the Index of Negrescence. These six counties form a dark-haired borderland in western England against Wales, and the eastern enfolding to Warwickshire cannot be disregarded. Monmouth is properly excluded, as contribution to English genius is extremely minute. It was not even normally English until the time of Henry VIII. It still remains anthropologically Welsh, and the study of its surname shows, as Gubby states in his homes of family names, that it is even more Welsh than Wales. The counties here included in the Welsh border are all much more thoroughly anglicised, but Welsh was spoken in most of them until comparatively recent times, even in Gloucestershire, undoubtedly a very mixed county. The language of Shropshire has been described as English spoken in a foreign language. In Herefordshire, Welsh appears to be not quite extinct even yet. The whole of the district represents the mingling on one side of Welsh elements, on the other of Saxon and Anglican elements. It is not difficult to account for this mingling. When in the 8th century, Offer extended the limits of Mercia westwards, changing the name of the British town of Penguin to Shrewsbury, he adopted the policy of leaving on the land all the Britons who wished to remain. In more recent times, there has been a Welsh reflux eastwards, and the result is a fairly thorough assimilation of Welsh and English racial elements. The Welsh elements we must certainly regard as predominantly Brythonic rather than Geodelic, the latter people being mainly confined to the northwest and southwest districts of Wales. It may therefore be said that this Anglo-Brythonic district of the Welsh border is intermediate in age between the recent East Anglican focus and the ancient southwestern focus. Among the more eminent individuals who belong wholly to the Welsh border are Alexander of Hales, Samuel Butler, Warren Hastings, Sir Thomas Lawrence, Shakespeare, Purcell, William Tenday, and Wedgley. Among those who belong to it in part are Robert Boyle, John Bright, Sir Thomas Brown, Clive, Charles Darwin, Fielding, Kevill, the Herberts, the Campbells, Landor, Macaulay, Mapp, William Morris, the Pens, Wedgwood, Wesleys, Wren, Wetterly. It will be noted that all three of the great folk of English intellect belong mainly to the southern half of the country, the most anciently civilised part, although within recent centuries at least, prosperous, 
and the most thinly populated, it must be added that nearly the whole of the northern part of England, from Lincolnshire, Nottinghamshire, and Derbyshire, through Yorkshire, well into the lowlands of Scotland, constitutes a large region, which, although its intellectual elements are of no great density, presents its own peculiar anthropological characters. It is a predominantly Anglo-Danish part of England, containing the fairest population of the country. Its intellectual fertility is greatest in its northern portions, which now form part of Scotland, and at its southern border, where it blends with East Anglica. To this last district belongs Sir Isaac Newton, the supreme representative of Anglo-Danish genius. Apart from exact science and from scholarship, the Anglo-Danish district, in proportion to its size, has not produced many men in purely intellectual fields. Its children have usually been more remarkable for force of character than for force of intellect. Their stubborn independent temper involves an aptitude for matrodom. Many religious matures came from this region, and the materiologist folks also. East Anglia is productive of great statesmen and great ecclesiastics. It is also a land of great scholars. At the same time, nearly half the British musical composers and more than a third of the painters have come from this same region. It has no aptitude for abstract thinking, for metaphysics, but in concrete thinking, in the art of treating science philosophically, it is easily supreme. Its special characters seem to be its humanity, its patience, its grasp of detail, its deliberate flexibility, combined with a profound love of liberty and independence. The characteristic English love of compromise is rooted in East Anglia. So typically English a statesman is Walpole, with his sound instincts in practical affairs belong to Norfolk, and Walsley belong to Suffolk. In spite, however, of the marked sanity and self-possession of the East Anglican, it may be added that while East Anglia has produced many of the best Englishmen, it has also produced a considerable proportion of the worst. Those who figure in English history, chiefly by virtue of their villainy, do not appear in my list, but it is notable that many of the great men who have come down to us from a somewhat flawed reputation belong here. Bacon is a typical example of the first rank. When we turn to the southwestern focus of English genius, we find ourselves among people of different mental texture, but of equal mental distinction. In positive intellectual achievement, they compare with the slow and patient people of East Anglia. While as brilliant personalities, they are in the very first rank. They are sailors rather than scholars, and courtiers, perhaps, rather than statesmen. They are innovators, daring freethinkers, pioneers in the physical intellectual worlds. Braley on both sides, a Devonshire man, is the complete type of these people. They are above all impressive personalities, aggressive, accomplished, irresistible, breaking rather than bending, without the careful foresight of the laborious and self-distrustful people of the East Coast. This district alone has furnished a third of the great sailors of Britain, and the most brilliant group were Drake and Hawkins and Gilbert as well as Rayleigh. The expanse of Elizabethan age gave the men of these parts their supreme chance, and they availed themselves of it to the utmost. Great Britain's most eminent soldiers have not usually been English, but one of the most famous of all, Marlborough, belongs to this region. In the arts of peace, this southwestern focus shows especially well in painting. It cannot indeed be compared to the East Anglican focus in this respect, but Reynolds belongs to Devon, and is a typical representative of the qualities of this region on the less aggressive side, just as Ridley is on the more militant side, both alike charming and accomplished personalities. Over the material and spiritual worlds there is an imaginative exaltation, an element of dash and daring, in the men of this southwestern district, which seems to carry them through safely. The southwestern focus is not quite so homogeneous as the eastern group. Somerset, which is the centre of the focus, seems to me to present its real and characteristic kernel, especially on the purely intellectual side. We do not find here the dashing recklessness, a somewhat piratical tendency nor quite the same brilliant personal qualities as at the western part of the peninsula. The Somerset group of men are superficially more like those of East Anglia, but in reality with a very distinct physiognomy of their own. Like the rest of this region, Somerset is a land of great sailors, but the typical sailor hero of Somerset is Blake, and the difference between Blake and Rayleigh is significant of the difference between the men of Somerset and the men of Devon. Somerset has produced the philosophers of this region, Roger Bacon, Hobbes, Locke, and in more recent days, Bagholt and Huxley have been typical thinkers of the group. Hooker, the judicious, is among the men of Devon. They are not often scholars, notwithstanding the presence of the ever-memorable Hales, being prone to rely much on their own native qualities. 
One recalls a remark of Hobbes when charged with an indifference to books. If I read as much as other people, I should know a little as other people. Well less concrete than the East Anglicans, these eminent thinkers have not the abstract metaphysical tendencies of the North British philosophers. They reveal a certain practical sagacity, a determination to see things clearly, a hatred of Kant and shams, a positive tendency, which is one of the notes of purely English thought, and may be said to have its headquarters here. The representative scientific men of this region is a brilliant and versatile Thomas Young, whose luminous intelligence and marvellous intuition render him a typical example of genius in its purest form. It is easy to define the nature of the genius of the Welsh border. It is artistic in the widest sense, and notably poetic. There is a tendency to literary and oratorical eloquence, frequently tinged with religious or moral emotion, and among those who belong entirely to this district, there are no scientific men of the first order. This region has the honour of claiming Shakespeare, and it may be pointed out that it is difficult to account for Shakespeare without assuming in him the presence of a large, though not predominant, Celtic element. Landor, one of the greatest of English masters of Rose, comes in part within the Welsh border, as does Fielding, while Purcell, the greatest of English musical composers, also probably belongs to this district. Sir Thomas Brown, though only a Welsh borderer on his father's side, is very typical. Macaulay is characteristic of the Celt as historian. The presence of Mrs. Siddons, although the genius of the Campbell family is attributed mainly to their Irish mother, helps to indicate the characteristics of this region which although it has produced fewer great personalities than the two main foci of English genius, has certainly had its full share in some of the very greatest. The part of the Welsh border in Darwin was small, but though he was more characteristically a son of the Anglo-Danish and East Anglican regions, it was probably not without its influence. It has already been made clear that the county of Kent constitutes a remarkable, though small, centre of English genius. I was formerly inclined to regard this very interesting district as dependent on the important East Anglican focus. I am convinced, however, that this is a mistake. If we carefully contemplate the eminent persons produced by Kent, it will be seen that they can be more easily affiliated, on the whole, to the southwestern than to the East Anglican focus. Harvey, for instance, the greatest of the Kentish men, resembled the southwestern people as much in intellectual temperament as by a short stature, dark hair and eyes, choleric constitution, he resembled them anthropologically. This seeming affinity of the genius of Kent to that of the southwestern promontory, though it cannot be said to be complete identity, may perhaps be regarded as one of the numerous facts which tend to invalidate belief, widely prevalent a few years under the influence of several eminent historians and ultimately resting on some rhetorical expressions of Gildas, that the Romano-British inhabitants of Kent were entirely exterminated by the Teutonic invaders. Undoubtedly, however, the Teutonic element is considerable in all the southeastern part of England, as far westwards as Wilts. One is indeed tempted to ask whether it may serve to explain another psychological phenomenon which is elevated by the distribution of English genius. The Jutes came to Kent, the Saxons occupied the regions to the west of Kent, this district including, with Kent and Essex, the whole of the light-herd populations of southern England is occupied by the counties of Sussex, Surrey, Hampshire and Berkshire. Except in so far as Surrey is suburban to London, and profits by this proximity in all regions is comparatively bare of Aboriginal genius, Mackintosh observed, in his notable study of the psychic characteristics of British peoples, that the unmixed English-Saxon, unlike the Angle, and possibly unlike the Jute, is marked by mental mediocrity. One is tempted to ask whether this fact, if it is a fact, may be invoked to explain the result of the present inquiry as regards this region. I do not propose to consider in detail the distribution of ability in other parts of the British Islands, for the figures are here too small to yield reliable results. The distribution of ability in Wales, Scotland, and Ireland is, however, so definitely confined to certain districts that a mere inspection of the crude figures suffices to give us, for each of these countries, a fairly close conception of their intellectual geography. In the case of Wales, the elements of ability are distributed as follows. Glamorganshire, 7. Denbighshire, 7. Montgomeryshire, 6. Radnorshire, 6. Flintshire, 3. Cardiganshire, 1. Pembrokeshire, 1. Merionthshire, 1. Carmarthenshire, 0. It is not difficult to understand why a large, fertile and populous district like Glamorganshire, even leaving out of account its commercial and mining activities, should stand high in actual numbers, 
though it stands lower in proportion to area and very low in relation to population, is more remarkable than Caermarthenshire, the largest wealth county, should show no traceable elements of genius. The really productive intellectual regions of Wales is comprised in Denbighshire, Montgomeryshire, and Radnorshire. This is a fact of some interest when we recall the, the ethnological history of this region. Wales is a geodelic country, that is to say a country inhabited by the earlier Celts mingled with Aborigines, which appears to have been subsequently invaded by the Brythonic Ordovices. These formed a wedge in the country reaching to Cardigan Bay, leaving the geodels in the northwestern district, and as we may still observe in the map founded on the index of Nigrescence, in the southwestern district. But later still, probably soon after the departure of the Romans, a very vigorous stock led by Cunida, and speaking a tongue very closely allied to Gaulish, came from what is now the south of Scotland, and established themselves in the centre of the Ordovician region, where their leaders became the acknowledged ancestors of the Gowan kings and the best-known Welsh saints. Their land compromised Redenshire, Montgomeryshire and southwestern Denmarkshire, which is precisely the land which we have found to be the focus of Welsh genius. It is very difficult not to see here one at least and perhaps the chief of the factors which of course is this comparatively unimportant and thinly peopled region to be so productive in ability. In accordance with the comparative poverty of Wales in intellectual achievements during the earlier periods of subjection to England is the statement of Rice and Byron Moore Jones, the Welsh people, page 471. The from the people as a whole hardly a voice comes during the centuries from the Norman conquest to the middle of the 18th century. They tilled their land, attended to their flocks and their herds, married and died in complete obscurity, without being in any great degree touched by the intellectual movements of the 16th and 17th centuries. These authors have ably expounded the causes of the intellectual decadence of Wales during the long period. The absolute figures of the ancestral elements of ability in Scotland are as follows. Midlothian, 28. Aberdeenshire, 26. Ayrshire, 21. Lanarkshire, 21. Fife, 15. Dumfrieshire, 14. Fordfrieshire, 12. Perthshire, 9. Haddingtonshire, 9. Rossshire and Cromatishire, 8. Berwickshire, 8. Stirlingshire, 6. Argyllshire, 5. Englishshire, 4. Roxburghshire, 4. Renfrewshire, 4. Dunbartonshire, 3. Sutherland, 2. Orkney and Shetland, 2. Kincardshire, 2. Invernessshire, 2. Nairnshire, 2. Clackmannanshire, 2. Selkirkshire, 2. Winktonshire, 2. Banffshire, 2. Kinrosshire, 1. Butshire, 1. Kethness, 1. Lidlithgowshire, 1. Peebleshire, 0. Kirkudbrightshire, 0. It will be seen that the genius of Scotland has been mainly produced by the tract between the Cheviots and the Grampians. While, however, the whole of this district is prolific in ability, a narrow central belt has proved pre-eminently able to breed men of intellect. This belt runs from Aberdeen in a southwesterly direction through Forfair, Fife, Midlothian, with the surrounding district, and Lanark, including Glasgow. On reaching Ayr and Dumfries, it widens out, not extending beyond the English border westward into Galway. Aberdeen and Edinburgh have always been the two great centres of Scotch genius. If, however, we were to take into consideration the proportions of genius according to area and population in the various counties, this geographical distribution would appear less decisively marked. The upland counties, whether in or out of the highlands proper, appear poor and genius, and the lowland counties rich. But it must be remembered that the upland counties are also poor in population and the lowland counties rich. So far as a rough comparison of the total amount of genius with the recent population can be considered as any indication of the true distribution of genius in Scotland, it would appear that both Aberdeen and Edinburgh really are very prolific in ability, and that Ayr, Fife, and even Sutherland are little, if at all, inferior intellectual ability, while Haddingtonshire, Berwickshire, and Dumfrieshire would appear to stand probably at the head. It would seem that even on a population basis, the dark-haired populations show a somewhat less intellectual fertility than the fair-haired populations. This question is obviously complicated by the language question, but it is noteworthy that Sutherland, which is as fair-haired in population as any part of Scotland, would appear to show a very high proportion of ability relatively to its population. 
while Inverness, which is as dark as part of Scotland, stands very low, and Galloway, which is a very dark region, stands very much lower than the border countries, which are very fair. If this tendency prevails in Scotland, it is the reverse of the tendency which prevails in England, the not in Wales, where the darker-haired districts seem on the whole to be more prolific in ability than the fair-haired regions. Another point about the distribution of genius in Scotland, which may be noted, is that the quantity and quality of its ability tend to go together. Knox, Burns, and Scott, the three most famous Scotsmen, it is unnecessary to say the greatest, all belong to counties which would appear to be among the most prolific in ability. Turning to Ireland, we find that, as in Scotland, certain regions appear to be rich in genius, others poor, or even absolutely bare. The distribution is as follows. Dublin, 15. Cork, 10. Antrim, 9. Down, 8. Waterford, 6. Londonderry, 6. Kilkenny, 5. Clare, 4. Westmeath, 4. Tyrone, 4. Wexford, 3. Limerick, 3. Kildare, 2. Tipperary, 2. Kerry, 2. Galway, 2. Mayo, 2. Donegal, 2. Armagh, 2. Cavan, 1. Carlow, 1. Wicklow, 1. Queen's County, 1. Longford, 1. Meath, Louth, King's County, Sligo, Roscommon, Latrium, Fermanagh, Monaghan, 0. The predominance of Dublin in Ireland, it will be seen, is more decisive than is that of Midlothian in Scotland. It is, however, possible that this is due to a great ignorance of the ancestry of eminent Irishmen. In any case, however, it will be observed that the region of Ireland chiefly productive inability is Leinster, with the adjoining portion of Munster, and closely following it Ulster. Both these districts, for we may consider them as separate, though they adjoin, as they are anthropologically distinct, the people of Ulster being much darker, have long been racially mixed. In the first district, Geodels and Brithons were both numerous, and various minor foreign immigrations have taken place here since. In comparatively recent times, it was chiefly in Waterford and Dublin that the French Huguenots of Ireland settled. Ulster, as is well known, received a large infusion of English and Scotch blood in the 17th century, and this admixture has very largely affected the character of the ability it has produced. It is, however, a mistake to suppose that the temperamental, sometimes rather aggressive energy of Ulster men is due solely, or even perhaps mainly, to English and Scotch admixtures, influential as these have been. There is neither in Alban nor in Ireland, we read in Lady Gregory's recession of the Great Irish Saga, an army that can put down the men of Ulster when once their weakness is gone and their anger is kindled. Geraldus Cambrensis also bears testimony to the vigour of the Aboriginal Ulstermen. The Saxon outsider is sometimes tempted to think that in many respects the modern men of Ulster are more Irish than the Irish themselves, and such an opinion finds support in the fact that as measured by the index of Negrescence, Ulster anthropologically approaches Connaught. There can be no doubt, however, that English and Scotch elements, however largely admixed with Aboriginal elements, play a very large part indeed in the manifestation of Irish genius. It would be of some interest to classify our eminent persons into groups according to their activities, and to note the district in which each group tends to predominate. Appendix B will enable the reader to examine into this matter for himself, as might be expected, politicians, divines, and men of letters abound in all parts of the kingdom. It is curious to note that great lawyers are also scattered over the whole kingdom with notable impartiality. While poets are to be found everywhere, they are distinctly more predominant in the south of England, and to a less extent in Wales and the Welsh border counties. But when we consider the origins of those English poets who are unanimously recognised to stand first, we find them scattered over the whole county as widely apart as possible. Chaucer probably in Suffolk, Spencer in Lancashire, Shakespeare in Warwickshire, Milton in Oxfordshire, Wordsworth in Yorkshire, Shelley in Sussex, Keats in Devon or Cornwall. In science, Scotland stands very high, Ireland extremely low. The distribution of scientific men is as follows. English 84, Welsh 2, Scotch 21, Irish 1, Scotch-English 7, Scotch-Irish 2, English-Irish 1, English-German 1, English-Dutch 1. In order to realise the extraordinary predominance of the Scotch over the Irish continent, it must be remembered that until the present century the population of Ireland has been much larger than that of Scotland, and it may be noted that the one purely Irish man of science, Tyndall, was of original English origin. 
If we proceed to consider the distribution of English men of science in the four district ethnological regions in which reference has already been made, we find that six belong more or less to the East Anglican focus, five to the southwestern focus, four to the Welsh border region, and seven to the large Anglo-Dutch district. It is of interest to compare these results with those obtained by Galton in the case of his modern English men of science. English men of science, page 1821, he found that three-fourths were English. Of every ten, there were five pure English, one Anglo-Welsh, one Anglo-Irish, one Scotch, one included Anglo-Scotch, Scotch-Irish, pure Irish, Welsh, Manx, and Channel Islands, one unclassed including mixture of English, French, German, Creole, Dutch, Swedish, etc. On analysis of the scientific status of the men on my list of remarks, it appeared to me that their ability is higher in proportion to their numbers among those of pure race. This may be said to be in agreement with my results, which necessarily deal with men of higher average order ability, but which show a very much smaller proportion of individuals of mixed race, though in part this difference may be accounted for by the greater precision of Mr. Gowden's information in relation to his cases. He further points out that the birthplace of his men of science is usually in towns away from the coast, and he presents a geographical diagram which shows the distribution. This diagram is of interest, for it shows with great precision the fallacy of birthplace as any true indication of the real distribution of ability. Nearly the whole of both these Anglican and Southwestern folk of genius are in this diagram left bare of scientific ability. The whole of the eastern counties, Mr. Galton remarks, and the huge triangle at whose angles Hastings, Worcester, Exeter, or rather Exmouth, are situated of very deficient in Aboriginal science. That the deficiency is very far from being Aboriginal becomes sufficiently clear when we are careful to ignore the accident of birthplace in determining the origins of men of science. Psychologically, it is not difficult to detect a distinct character in English scientific genius, according as it springs from the Anglo-Danish district, or the East Anglian focus, or the Southwestern focus, although I am not aware that this has been pointed out before. The Anglo-Danish district may here be fairly put first, not only on account of the large number of scientific men it has wholly or in part produced, but also on account of the very high eminence of some among them. The Anglo-Dan appears to possess an aptitude for mathematics, which is not shared by the native of any other English district as a whole, and it is in the exact sciences that the Anglo-Dan triumphs. Newton is the supreme figure of Anglo-Danish science. It will be noted that he belongs to the East Anglican border, and by his mother is claimed by Rutland, a little county which, I am inclined to think, really belongs psychologically and perhaps ethnologically to East Anglica. The combination of the Anglo-Dan and the East Anglican seems highly favourable to scientific aptitude. The abstracting tendency of the Anglo-Dane and the exaggerated independence of his character, with the difficulty he finds in taking any other point of view than his own, are happily tempered by the more cautious and flexible mind of the East Anglican. Darwin, who also belonged to the Welsh border, belonged in part, like Newton, to the East Anglican border of the English-Danish district, and also somewhat remotely to Norfolk, a county which contains many Danish elements. The science of the Anglo-Danish district is not exclusively mathematical, and geology especially owes much to the Anglo-Dane. It will be remembered that geology was one of the first sciences to attract Darwin. The East Anglian is in scientific matters drawn to the concrete, and shows little or no mathematical aptitude. He is a natural historian in the widest sense. He delights in the patient collection of facts, and seeks to sift, describe, coordinate and classify them. In his hands, science becomes almost an art. Gilbert illustrates East Anglian scientific methods in the inorganic world. Ray in the organic, and Francis Bacon, though he cannot himself be classed among men of science, has in the Novum Organum and elsewhere presented a picture of a scientific method, as it most naturally appears to the East Anglian mind. It is not easy to see anything specific or definitely brythonic in the scientific activities of the Welsh border, and most of it may be said that there is some tendency for science here to take on a technological character and to become associated with the artistic crafts. The scientific men found here often belong only in part to the district, and many of them seem to possess the psychological characters of the southwestern focus. The scientific characters of the southwestern focus are quite clear, and definitely distinct from those of either the Anglo-Danish district or the East Anglian focus. What we find here is the mechanical impulse, and more especially the psychological temper, the instinct to seek out the driving forces of vital phenomena. It is on this account that Harvey, 
though of Kentish family, may be said to belong psychologically to this focus, and also Stephen Hales, though he belonged partially to Kent and partially to East Anglia. The great scientific physicians belong here, the surgeons allied to East Anglian, with Sydenham at the head of the Glisson. Huxley again is a typical figure. Inventors are numerous, for the scientific men of this region have frequently been enamoured of practical problems, and just as they have been pioneers in the physical world, so in science they have sought rather to make discoveries than to formulate laws. Thus in astronomy we have Adams, and one of the greatest and most typical scientific men of this region was Thomas Young. When we consider the distribution of great soldiers, we find the following results. English 22, Welsh 3, Irish 4, Scotch 13, English-Scotch 4, English-Irish 2, Scotch-Irish 2. Within England, 7 belong to the Anglo-Danish district, 6 to the East Anglican focus, 5 to the southwestern focus, and 4 to the Welsh border. In England itself, it will be seen, military genius is relatively less pronounced than in any other part of the British Islands. And what absolute numerical preponderance the English element possesses seems to be due exclusively to the earlier periods of English history. The line of great English generals apparently ended with Marlborough. The Scotch stand easily at the head. The Irish would take a much higher place a week if we consider the 19th century severally. When, however, we turn to the distribution of great sailors, a very different result is shown, and the position of English ability is more than asserted. While England has produced as many as 29 great sailors, and two are Scotch, one English-Scotch, one English-Welsh, and none Irish. Within England, 11 belong to the southwestern focus, 10 to the Anglo-Danish district, more especially to its southern border in Lincolnshire, 4 to the East Anglican focus, and 4 to the Welsh border. The distribution of artists, including sculptors and architects as well as painters, is as follows. English 51, Welsh 3, Scotch 10, Irish 5, English-Welsh 1, English-Scotch 2, Scotch-Irish 1, English-French 2, English-German 2, English-Italian 1, English-Russian 1. With England, we find that 18 are scattered over the large Anglo-Danish district, more than a third of these, however, belonging to the small county of Nottinghamshire, 12 East Anglian, 8 belong to the southwest, 6 to the Welsh border. The fertility of Nottinghamshire, a county not otherwise notably productive of genius in artists, is a phenomenon of some interest in view of the fact that Nottinghamshire was a great art centre in the 14th century, when its alabusters sent retables, screens, and figure panels to all parts of Western Europe. Architectural Review, April 1903, page 143. It would be idle to see here the influences of tradition. We cannot suppose that there was any continuity of this kind between the 14th century alabasters and 19th century painters, and possibly of such continuity have been absolutely destroyed by the Reformation. The reasonable supposition is that we see here a native bent to art showing itself at one time in one form, at another time, in another form. I have elsewhere, monthly review, March 1902, discussed some interesting points in the distribution of British artists and have shown how the painters of the East Coast differ essentially from those of the West. A very definite case of special distribution of ability, differing markedly from the distribution of ability generally, is furnished by great actors and actresses. So far as it can be traced, this distribution is as follows. English 23, Welsh 1, Irish 6, English-Welsh 1, English-Scotch 1, English-Irish 6, English-French 1, Irish-French 1, English-Irish, French-Swiss 1, English-Danish 1. It will be seen that the Scotch virtually do not appear at all, and that the relative preponderance of the Irish is enormous. Our knowledge of the ancestry of actors is peculiarly vague and uncertain, and it is highly probable that if our knowledge on this point were more precise, the preponderance of the Irish element at the expense of the English element would be still greater. The distribution of actors within England, so far as we are able to trace, it further illustrates the poverty of the more specifically English districts and dramatic ability of the high order. Four of our great actors and actresses belong more or less to the southwestern focus, four to the Welsh border, three to the East Anglian focus, and only two to the whole Anglo-Danish district. I do not propose to discuss here the various causes which have led to the special distribution of genius in the British Islands, and to the variations in distribution shown by different kinds of genius. While many of the characters thus revealed are evidently due to racial characteristics, it will be rash to assume that they may all thus be accounted for. We have also to take into account the environmental conditions. 
It is not easy to make an exact comparison on the basis before the 19th century. Careful study of the condition of England made by Joseph Fletcher, Secretary of the Statistical Society on the basis of the census of 1841, conveniently enables us to make various comparisons for this period, and we may be fairly certain that the conditions then prevailing had existed during a considerably earlier period. When, on this basis, we examine the various counties, there would appear to be a tendency to correlation between fertility and genius and 1. Amount of real property per head of population, 2. Deficiency of persons of independent means, 3. Amount of ignorance, Norfolk is among the seven most ignorant counties, while Suffolk and Hertfordshire are also among the ignorant counties, 4. Committals of serious offences against the person, Norfolk is at this period the most criminal country in this respect, being in relation to population 80%. Above average, while Huntingdonshire, with little genius, has the least criminality, being 63% below average. 5. Bastardy, the four counties with largest proportion of illegitimate children being Cumberland, Hereford, Norfolk and Nottinghamshire. On the other hand, there appears to be no tendency to correlation between fertility and genius and 1. Offences against property, excluding the malicious group which are included in offences against the person. 2. Assaults. 3. Improvident marriages. 4. Pauperism. 5. Density of population. 6. Crime. General commitments. 7. Amount of deposits and savings banks per head of populations. While such comparisons are at various points of much interest and possibly of real significance, it must be remembered that, though it is highly probable that there is a real connection between genius and the conditions prevailing in its environment, we must not here too hastily assume such a connection. It may be added that we should also have to take into consideration the conditions prevailing in the birthplaces of men of genius, which are not always the places of their origin. End of section 2